Um, well, I, I picked up a new hobby this year because I bought a home, and so my new hobby is owning a home. And, uh, and so along with that, um, even not having cable television, um, not because I can't afford it, but because I'm a millennial and I have the attention span of a goldfish. Um, but despite not having cable, I've, I've come to love this show, Fixer Upper, starring Chip and Joanna Gaines. So yes, they're, they're wonderful. And Joanna's having a baby, and we're so excited about that. Um, uh, and so if you're, if you're not familiar, uh, Fixer Upper is a home renovation show, and every show basically follows the same arc. So if you've seen one, you want to see them all. And, uh, and so it goes like this. They, they help this couple buy a new home, and then, and then they help the couple figure out how to, what, the, you know, what plans they want to make up for how they're going to renovate it. And, uh, and then the same thing happens in every single show. It's the first day of work. And Chip, he puts his hat on backwards if it wasn't already. He puts pr protective goggles on. He puts his gloves on. He takes the sledgehammer in his hands because it's demo day. The first step in any home renovation is demo day. And all of the walls have to be knocked out because open concept homes are really in right now. And they knock out all the walls and they replace them with, with plants and things like that. <laughs> but it all starts with Demo Day, and I think that's helpful for, for looking at our passage. Um, of course, our passage, Isaiah chapter 4, is, is this word of hope, but really it's a word of renovation for hopeless and despairing Israel. It's, it's the end of the story, and if you want the beginning of the story, you read Isaiah chapters 2 and 3, which are all about Demo Day all about tearing out the old so God can do something new. And the theme of these three chapters, two to four, the theme is pride, is human pride. And what we see Isaiah saying, or what we hear him saying, is that God wants to demolish your pride. He wants to ruin your pride so that in Isaiah chapter four, he can renew your pride. God wants to ruin your pride so that he can renew your pride. And so maybe you're thinking, why would God want to renew my pride? Like, isn't, isn't pride a bad thing? Um, and, uh, and of course, yes, often it is. But, but in English, just like in Hebrew, pride has these two opposite meanings. It's one of those funny words. And so there's, there's a line by the Avett brothers that says, you know, I want to have pride like my mother had and not like the kind in the Bible that turns you bad. So there's the bad kind of pride, which, which C.S. Lewis says is characterized by comparison and competition. So it's not so much that we're, we're proud of being smart or wealthy or funny or any of those things, but we're proud of being smarter or wealthier or funnier or, or more charismatic or whatever than our peers. And then on the other hand, there's the good kind of pride, the, the kind of pride that hopefully our mother has that's characterized by security and rest. The good kind of pride is actually characterized by humility, believe it or not. Good pride is, is true, it's satisfied, and in that sense, it's the kind of pride that God himself has. 
So when these words for pride are applied to God, they end up getting translated by things like glory and majesty. That's God's true sense of who he is towards us. That's his majesty. And so if, if you have a Bible, turn to, turn to Isaiah chapter 2. Um, this is fun, just looking at Demo Day. Um, so God has big plans for Israel. We know that, right? I mean, he promises to Abraham, Israel, you're going to be a blessing to all of the other nations. And so Isaiah has this vision for what this should look like and what it'll look like again one day in, uh, in chapter 2, verse 3. And he says, the nations are going to say things like, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to Jerusalem, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his paths. Israel was meant to be a hope for the nations, but Israel was proud. And so instead of being a hope for the nations, she put her hope in the nations. And for a while, it worked. When Isaiah is prophesying, Israel is at the peak of its prosperity. They're doing really well. And so that's why uh, chapter 2, verse 7, it says, Their land is filled with silver and gold. There's no end to their treasures. Their land is filled with horses. There's no end to their chariots. I mean, talk about financial and physical security. But her, her prosperity was a sham. It was not from the Lord. It was from striving to be like the nations, no matter the cost. So chapter 2, verse 8, it says, Their land is filled with idols. The people of God bowed down to the work of their own hands, to what their own fingers have made. So what's the connection to pride here? What, is, what does idolatry have to do with pride? Well, if worship of the true God is, is us turning outwards for ultimate satisfaction in the only one who can provide it for us, then idols are, as Isaiah describes, a turning inwards to bring about these things by our own willpower. And so our pride craves satisfaction. We crave, like Bishop Stewart talked about on Monday Thursday, I mean, we crave those, those words of praise, and, and you're a benefactor, those labels that, that justify all of the hard work that we've been putting in, even for the Lord. And it turns good gifts, like our service and our ministry and our intelligence and our charisma and our beauty, our strength, even our thoughtfulness and our good discernment, it turns all of those good gifts into tools that we use to measure ourselves up against others and ultimately over against the Lord. I mean, how often do you find yourself comparing your own gifts or talents or station in life or, I don't know, the goodness of your children to other people, and maybe even in this church? How deeply do you crave to be regarded in a certain way? And do you find yourself finding comfort that you are not like those people over there, whoever those people might be? See, pride is so dangerous because we're so unaware of the way that it's, it's influencing the decision-making uh, in our lives. And so what does God do? What does God do when we are unaware of our own pride and unaware of the destruction that it's causing to ourselves and to our relationship with him and to our relationship with others? What does God do? He makes us aware. 
That's what he does in Isaiah chapter 2. He makes the people aware, and he does it through something called the splendor of God's majesty. That comes up three times in chapter 2. And it's not even a competition. When human pride is, is put next to the splendor of God's majesty, when prideful humans face up to the reality of the majesty of the infinite and incomprehensible God, human pride falls flat on its face. It cannot stand. So chapter 2, verse 10, Isaiah says, Enter into the rock, hide in the dust from before the terror of the Lord and from the splendor of his majesty. And Isaiah, he then goes on to describe all the ways that lofty, the lofty pride of Israel is going to be brought low to the ground so that, as it says in verse 11, the Lord alone will be exalted in that day. So everything bows down before the Lord. And not just everything in Israel, but, but everything, all of the hope that they put in the nations, all of their security and strength and power. And so the cedars of Lebanon bow down. And the oaks of Bashan, they bow down. And the lofty mountains and the uplifted hills, the high tower, the fortified walls, the ships of Tarshish, the best technology of the day, able to sail to the furthest reaches of the known world, all of it bows down before the splendor of God's majesty on demolition day. The splendor of God's majesty is like a sledgehammer that God doesn't even need to use. He just shows up, and human pride falls flat on its face. An awareness of God's majesty ruins our pride in the best of ways. And so it's in that day, it's in that same day, with every tall tree bowed down, that Isaiah has this vision of a small green shoot rising up from the ground. I mean, you can picture it. All of these, these tall trees, I mean, just clear-cut by the majesty of God. All the tall ships sunk. And the only thing standing is this little green shoot, the branch of the Lord coming up from the ground. I mean, it seems insignificant. No one could see it. But now that they do, they see that the branch of the Lord is beautiful and glorious. And its fruit shall be the pride and honor of the survivors of Israel. This little fruit-bearing green branch will be the pride and honor of the survivors of Israel. That's the good kind of pride. It's the pride that comes after the fall when God has restored us. And the cool thing about that word pride there, our pride, the pride that we now have in the branch of the Lord, that's the word for majesty and the splendor of God's majesty. In the renovation of our hearts, God's majesty becomes our pride. Once our human pride is ruined, and once it's renewed in the Lord, his majesty becomes our pride. And so no longer is our pride in what we have achieved or become or are, either by our hard work or our parents' hard work or whatever, 
but our pride is in God and the gifts that he's given. Our sense of value and worth is in the branch of the Lord, Jesus Christ, the radiance of the Father's glory. And what's his fruit? It's, it's holiness, it's perfection, it's forgiveness of sins, it's righting of wrongs, it's eternal life. It's his presence with us forever. All of the things which we could never acquire or earn on our own. So chapter 4, verse 3 now. And he who is left in Zion and remains in Jerusalem will be called holy. Holy, that the one thing that's only a tribute, that, that property of God that, that belongs to him alone is now given to us. Even, in, even on our most innocent day, we wouldn't be holy like God is holy, and yet his holiness is given to us. And this renovation is right in line with, with God's promises to Abraham and to Moses and to David. You know, so, uh, so verse 5 in chapter 4 is promised to Abraham, the people of Israel are going to dwell in Mount Zion. God is going to plant his people in a land, and they're going to prosper there, and they're going to be a blessing to the nations. And just like his promise to Moses, his holy presence is there. Over her assembly is a cloud by day and smoke and the shining of a flaming fire by night. And then this, this wonderful Davidic image of a temple, that there's this canopy over the clouds. Only, only the cloud isn't tucked away in the holy of holies in the temple, but the cloud covers the whole city, which means that the holy people of God are in the holy of holies, enjoying God's presence. It's a, it's a marriage symbol. It's a, that canopy is a, is a chuppah. It's that, it's that tent that goes over the bride and groom. This is God marrying his people, being covenanting with them forever. And there will be a booth uh, for shade by day and from the heat and refuge and a shelter from the storm and rain, which is a Hebrew way of saying that in any circumstance, the really hot day or the cold rain, that in any circumstance, the people of God are protected, secure, able to rest in a pride that is satisfied, in a pride that is true, in a pride that doesn't hunger and strive to be fed with false idols. And so thinking about revival and this hunger that, that so many of us have for revival, and I was thinking, I mean, who doesn't want this? Who doesn't want this, this experience like Wheaton College had in, I think it was 1995, where scores of students are bringing these huge trash bags full of just the awful things that in their pride they had hidden from the Lord, you know, where they're bringing... Uh, pornography, and they're bringing music that, that is harmful to their soul, and they're bringing these movies that are harmful to their soul. And they're, they're bagging all of them up, all of these hidden things, and pushing them before the altar. At college church, I mean, right down the road, pushing them before God. What marks every revival? It's confession of sin. It's an awareness of God's majesty that turns all of our pride into foolishness, that turns all of our hiding into silliness, 
but we just come on our knees and accept the reality that of the splendor of God's majesty, the greatness of the fact that, that we can see now the branch of the Lord, glorious and beautiful, where its fruit of holiness and purity and, and gracious love for even the worst of sinners, even us, is given freely and where that becomes our pride and honor, turns to foolishness all of the idols that our world cares about, that we so often care about. Revival begins with ruined pride, and it is sustained by a renewed pride in the majesty of the Lord. Thanks be to God.